Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Good evening. How's it going? Welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by a very, very special guest. He hasn't been on the show for a while, but I thought with a gap currently of eight points between our two sides, now is as good a time as any to get on uh, my good friend, Dan DeLuca. Dan, how are you? Yeah, great. Great to be back. Great to be back. Shame you under these circumstances, but, you know, that's, that's how it has to be. <laughs> if you're wondering why you can't see uh, Dan DeLuca, we, we've had a bit of a technical issue with the camera, which is why we were a little bit delayed in starting. Uh, but you'll just have to listen to his dulcet tones instead. Um, I, I'm sure he will agree that I'm the far better looking one anyway. And you'd probably much rather look at me than him anyway. No offence, Dan, but it is what it is. Uh, but anyway, mate, how have you been? How's things going outside of Tottenham and and everything that's been kind of going on there this season. Yeah, we're all right. You know, long, long year. Um, not even got a World Cup to look forward to because it's on at like three in the afternoon and all that sort of stuff. But not <laughs> not too bad. Keeping well. Just quickly on the World Cup. I know Italy aren't in it, which is obviously disappointing for you. And it obviously damages the kind of appeal of the tournament, I'm sure. But, you know, how are you feeling about this World Cup in general? You know, where it is, the timing of it. What's your opinion on all of that? Um, well, I was very unhappy when Qatar awarded the World Cup. I remember where I was when that when they did the three. They did uh, two awards in a row, didn't they? Which was completely unnecessary. And um, mm. I was concerned. And those concerns have been realised. And even then, um, there was no word it was going to be a Winter World Cup. It just doesn't feel like a World Cup, does it? Um, and I appreciate other countries or other parts of the world have to deal with what we're dealing with now, mid-season, in the winter. But I think the culture of how we watch World Cups in this country has been impacted by this. And it's very hard to have the same level of excitement. That's without Italy not qualifying. I watched yeah. the last World Cup, Italy didn't qualify for that either. I still enjoyed it. I'm sure when the football starts, I'll enjoy some matches. But in terms of the excitement and the build-up, that's, that's not there at all for me. At this moment, yeah, it's, re- it's going to be really difficult, isn't it, to kind of switch from all your focus being on Premier League football, and then just in a matter of days, you've got to you know turn your attentions to an international competition. In the past, with the World Cup being in the summer, you get that time to kind of wind down, process all that went on during the domestic campaign, and then you can slowly turn your attention gradually over a period of time. But now it's just like bang, there it is. Here you go, World Cup football. Uh, begin so yeah I totally appreciate that it's going to be really difficult I think at the beginning and I think the group stages are going to be a little bit of a drag I've got to be honest just looking at some of the games looking at the times of some of them it's not going to be ideal and even the seven o'clock game Dan um, I know we're not here to talk about the World Cup but even the seven o'clock game it's just a little bit too early isn't it 
people with kids especially would probably want it to be eight o'clock just so you can get home have your dinner put them to bed and then sit down and watch the game without the distraction yeah yeah absolutely that and i think um i mean i watch pretty much every game of every international tournament and get in trouble anyway but for those who <laughs> you know look forward to you know doing their bit of home and then settling down for a bit of peace and quiet the seven o'clock kind of ruins that doesn't it um, yeah so yeah there's gonna be a lot of uh, unhappy wives in the united kingdom um I'm sure. And I think we're going to talk about Arsenal very shortly, I'm sure. But with the World Cup in the middle of the season, with momentum going well, could you think of anything worse than to have to stop for a World Cup? You know, it's got to be frustrating. Um, it's got to be frustrating for all the players. It's got to be frustrating for the managers, the clubs. Um, and it, and it's unique. Hopefully it doesn't happen again. But um, it'll be interesting to see how um, some people fare after Absolutely. the World Cup's over. Absolutely, for sure, mate, for sure. Uh, just a few hellos to the chat before we carry on. Uh, big hello to Creambone, to Henry, to Riddy, to Richie, to Alex, uh, to John, to Afsar, to Michael, uh, to Suhaib, who says, where was 19 in today? There was no show today, uh, just because there were a few of us that were supposed to be on it that were unavailable in the end for various different reasons. And I was supposed to be on holiday. I am on holiday. Um for the next week or so, even though I'm still sitting here talking about football. I just can't resist it while Arsenal are top of the league. But that's why there wasn't a show today, uh, just because I was off. A couple of the other guys couldn't make it as well. And uh, and so in the end, we decided rather rather than half ass it, that we just uh, leave it and we'll be back later on in the week and we'll look back on, on some of the big talking points as well, of course. OK, right. Um, Let's get into it then. Let's talk about the Premier League. Let's talk about the mighty Arsenal, Dan. And I know and appreciate this is probably quite difficult for you, but I think actually when you listen to a rival's assessment, it normally tells you quite a lot about where your team is at and how your team is viewed by the wider audience. So what have you made of Arsenal's start to the season? And then more specifically, what did you make of the performance at Stamford Bridge yesterday? Yeah, so, so to start with, it's not difficult at all. Um it is what it is, you know, football is football and you watch it and you have to call it as it is. Um, so, you know, it's not difficult. It's Arsenal aren't the type of club who are, are going to be rubbish forever. You know, there's going to be a time where Arsenal return to to some kind of form. And, and that time clearly is this season. We're a third of the way through the season now. Um, I'll start with Arsenal Arsenal so far this season. I describe it as, as a perfect season. And some of what I say in this next bit, there's going to be Arsenal fans thinking there's a bit of bitterness about it. There's no bitterness at all. This is just the facts of where Arsenal are. Um, a decent transfer window, decent starting fixtures. And you'll remember me saying to you pre-season, Harry, that I thought Arsenal would be top of the league at the end of October. The end of October come, Arsenal were top of the league. They've carried that on into early November. Um, good momentum. Um, a little bit a little bit of rub, playing really, really good football. Um, getting... a little bit of rub, a little there's bit of rub. Run. There's been a little bit of rub. Um, it, it, there's been a, a couple of a couple of decisions that have fallen on the right side. That's all good stuff. That's not oh, your behave. fault. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me finish now. That's not Arsenal's fault. That's not your fault. That's not your listeners' fault. What I'm saying is, these are all components that, when they come together, is fantastic for for the team. Momentum's high, confidence is high. There's been last. There's been late goals when you've needed them. There's been good performances away from home. And I would say of the games I've watched Arsenal play this season, which is all 13 of them, I say you deserve to win 12. So what? This isn't just the. At the beginning, people were saying things like, "Well, they haven't played anyone yet." Well, now you have played someone. Um, 
or there's always those doubts one by one have been taken away. And now we're looking at it a third of the season through. And I'd be saying Arsenal players and Arsenal fans must be going into every single game believing they could win. And what that does is that turns those potential draws, those tricky games that, you know, the horrible little games like West Ham away. You know, you think, oh, Crystal Palace away first game of the season. You look at that and you think, oh, you know, that could be a draw. But that confidence and that momentum is massive. And what Arsenal were doing um, and what this um, Sunday showed as well is Arsenal are winning in different ways now. And that's really, really important for a title challenge. That's when it becomes not just a good team who are capable of putting up a, you know, a fight for half a season and holding on to top four. If you can win in different ways, then you're capable of, of coming out on most matches with a positive result. So I think Arsenal are in a really, really good place. Um, another thing I was going to say about, you know, everything being perfect, no major injuries yet, which is fantastic. This is exactly what a club needs. I'm not sitting here wanting clubs to have injuries so things don't go well, but everything is going perfectly well. Um, I'm just reading your man's comment there. There's no pain here, mate. Been watching football. <laughs> I've, I've watched Arsenal win all sorts. There's nothing about this that hurts me one bit. Um, everything's going really, really well. The new signings have settled in. There's people coming off the bench when they need to have contributing. And you're in a really, really good place. Um, you asked me about the performance on Sunday and I described it to you as extremely comfortable. Extremely comfortable. I didn't feel it was the best attacking display from Arsenal that I've seen this season. Um, it, it, in fact, it, it, it wasn't. It was probably the, the quietest you looked after the first 15 minutes. But I never felt at any point that Chelsea at Stamford Bridge was going to win that game. And I think that's really, really telling. I thought it was probably Arsenal's best performance of the season in terms of complete control at a difficult fixture. And yeah. with the exception of the game against Leeds, um, it's hard to pick a game that Arsenal didn't deserve to win, um, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's 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 a hard one because... Well, no, it's not a hard one. It's a great thing. It's It's brilliant to see because... You mentioned that you didn't feel at any point yesterday that Chelsea were going to win at Stamford Bridge. And, and as you say, that tells you a lot about how far Arsenal have come. And normally I'm one of those people that goes through the mill during a game, right? And really suffers during the game and often has to go back and then watch it back. Sort of when the emotion has died down a little bit, and when everything's calmed down and go, oh yeah, actually, do you know what? I don't know what I was that stressed about because actually the opportunities that they created weren't very good or... Actually, they weren't anywhere near as dangerous as I felt at the time. Normally, the nerves and emotions during the 90 minutes make me feel and almost over-exaggerate how, I don't want to say the word lucky, but, you know, how we got away with something. But yesterday at Stamford Bridge, and, and obviously I was there, I didn't feel that at any moment. Not from the start of the game. I didn't fear Chelsea from the beginning. I didn't fear them in the middle and I didn't fear them at the end. Once we scored, I never felt that they even looked close or remote like coming back into that game. No, they, they had they had one they had one chance, didn't they? Um they had one chance after the goal. And it was it was to call it a chance was generous. And even that was um a, a bit of a shambles really in the sense that the the flag should have gone up and it didn't and then they were able to break away and, and it was total control. They never looked dangerous. Um a Bamiyang which probably Gives a lot of people on uh, listening great pleasure. Was completely oh. ineffective and nullified, um, which is always nice to see someone returning and have a stinker. Um, so that that was obviously good stuff. Um, Raheem Sterling, who 
anyone who's heard me speak before knows exactly what I think about Raheem Sterling. He's been Go on, let it all out. Oh, he's rubbish. Absolutely. He's been rubbish for three <laughs> years. And unfortunately, it takes people to hit rock bottom before they realise I was right. But um, yeah, he was absolutely ineffective as well. And what summed up the game for me was Arsenal drained the belief out of Chelsea to the extent that I think it was a 94th minute. They lumped the hopeful ball forward trying to get an equaliser. And it was Sterling up front on his own with seven defenders and no Chelsea player bothering to contribute. The, the belief was absolutely drained. And just to top it off, Sterling somehow managed to be stood offside. And I just thought Arsenal have broken them without even looking at emphatic. It was a really, really good, mature, comfortable display. And probably the first time we've seen that this season. And they're the sort of displays that are going to be needed to maintain a title challenge. So for, for yourself, Harry, you probably be quite refreshed to win a game in that way. Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's the first time we were dominant this season, but away from home in a fixture like that. Sorry, not not dominant, not dominant, because yeah. you've dominated you've dominated every game in the sense. I thought we dominated out, United as well yeah. and lost. Yeah, you've started fast in every single game, and mm. um, yeah, you've tailed off a little bit in the second half. But if you're already two or three goals up, then you can, can't you? It's, it's not a problem. But to go there and restrict the team of Chelsea's stature at Stamford Bridge, whether they're in form or not, to nothing. Pretty much in 90 minutes, I, I can't remember anything they, they, they produced, really. Um, really, really comfortable. As this is our sort of Premier League-themed show where we're going to be obviously looking back at the big stories from the weekend, I want to get your take on Chelsea. Flip it to the other side for a minute because Graham Potter has come in and he's taken over the role. You spoke about Chelsea looking broken. I thought Graham Potter looked broken in the press conference. I was sitting there sort of watching his body language, watching him speak. And there was a question that came. I don't know the gentleman's name, but from a journalist that was sitting a couple of rows behind me. And he literally went, Graham, I don't want to sound harsh here, but it doesn't look like the players know what they're doing. And Graham Potter just responded with, I don't think that's true. And then like a kind of blank look. And, and just in that moment, I started to think as good a coach as he is and as much as I like him. And, and actually, I don't want Chelsea to succeed, but I'd quite like Graham Potter to go on and have a good career because I admire the way he sort of came up and then went, you know what, it's not happening for me in England. I'm going to do what a lot of English coaches and players were always reluctant to do in the past and go elsewhere and learn his trade. And then he circled back and he's got a job like Chelsea. But... He just he just looked to me yesterday like someone who doesn't really know how to handle the pressure that he's currently under and that he's always going to be under managing a team, as you say, of Chelsea's stature. Do you think that that was, A, a good appointment? And do you think that Graham Potter can be a success going forward at Stamford Bridge? It's a difficult one. Um, I like Graham Potter. And when Chelsea appointed him, like I said I was quite sad because I don't want to not like Graham Potter. I think he's a really good coach. He's done well everywhere he's been. He plays a good type of football. He's a nice guy. He's fair in his assessments of the game. The reality is, I mean, you said he looked a bit, uh, what was the word you used? Disheveled, just, a bit lost. A bit he just devastated. looked a bit, yeah, like as if, but, how, I can't believe someone's asking me this question. But let, let's say how it is, right? If you've mm. if you've sold Cucurella for £63 million, pounds, you're over the moon. And then two months later, you've got to manage him again. I mean, that's a bit of a kick in the teeth. So let's start with that. Um, look, let's have it right. Chelsea is a step up in level, is a step up in pressure. And 
Chelsea weren't playing well before Graham Potter joined. So clearly there's some work that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, there are some big players in the dressing room with big um, careers behind them. And I don't want to, this is a sweeping judgment I'm about to make about these players. Uh, obviously, you know, I don't know this about these players, but you do get the feeling there are some players in there who would look at Graham Potter and think, I didn't come to play for Graham Potter. And there's something about being English and coming from a club like Brighton and then Swansea as a manager where at a club like Chelsea, you need to earn that respect. You shouldn't have to, but that's that's a bit of modern football. There are some managers you can turn up straight away and command instant respect and get it. Graham Potter clearly is going to want to change the way Chelsea have been playing. That's going to take quite a bit of time there, and I do worry if he's going to get that time. We don't know what Chelsea's new owners are like compared to Abramovich, but they did sack Thomas Tuchel pretty quickly. Um, you saw... Um, and I saw an article on Raheem Sterling, who, again, absolutely dreadful and has been for, for a long time. But Chelsea called Sterling their number one target. He joined Chelsea stating he was looking forward to play for Tuchel. Now, Tuchel's not there. Um, but let me just let me just pause you there, Dan, because I agree with you that Sterling's been underwhelming in terms of what he's done at Chelsea so far. But with the exception of yesterday, where Chelsea did seem to change the formation a little bit and go with something more like what we'd expect and something more like a role for Sterling that I'd expect him to play in. He has at times been at least on paper playing at left wing back since Graham Potter's come in. Surely we've got to give Raheem Sterling a bit of leeway in the sense of he's playing roles that are not always the roles that he was maybe brought into play. He's had to adapt to that. He's not really put up a fuss about it. He's just got on with it. And so if you take him out of the position where he's most effective, naturally, of course, you're going to see a drop-off in performance, no? Um, well, sure, if you're a left-winger attacking player and you're asked to play left-wing-back, then that's that's probably not going to end very well. And I would encourage Graham Potter not to uh, not to utilise that um, too much. Obviously, Chilwell's injured. They've got other left-back wing-backs at the club. I don't see why they need to do that. Um, is it a case of trying to fit Raheem Sterling in um, as opposed to playing him somewhere and, and these inexperienced managers do often do this a lot um fans do it a lot when they create their combined teams or oh, we'll just fit him <laughs> in because he's a big name oh we'll, we'll, we'll play him in midfield he's a striker doesn't matter um Raheem Sterling hasn't had a goal or assist since August this is this is the harsh reality of it obviously there's more to a game a player's game than that but Raheem Sterling isn't the sort of player who historically offers any more than than those things he was struggling to get in the Man City side. He stunk the Champions League final out. And even though he scored three goals, I, as I did say on this pod during the Euros, I thought he was terrible in the Euros tactically um, and found himself almost nullifying other players. So I think Raheem Sterling is a problem and he was the big signing of the summer. I did say to you as well, and you'll remember this, Harry, I did say I did fear for Chelsea this year in terms of top four because I felt like their transfer business was just run around with a sack of money and get anyone who was available. They were the exact yeah. words I used. Um, Abamyang is, is a prime example of that. You know, um, It felt like we haven't got a striker really. Who is there? Abamyang, okay. Um, the centre-half, Koulibaly, anyone available. I didn't feel there was much of a transfer strategy. I, I feel this particular team has been thrown together by the new owners. Yeah. Um I'm not convinced, again, I don't know this, I'm not convinced Thomas Tuchel had as much as a say as you would expect for a manager of his, of his size. 
there was obviously some friction. He was sacked very, very early. Um, Graham Potter is a good appointment for the owners because he might toe the line for a bit. But I think the key at Chelsea is what are these new owners like? We don't know. But in terms of their transfer strategy, it all felt very desperate. Um, yeah. And they don't look they don't look very good or threatening. Um, and that's the, the harsh reality of it. Let's let's move it on a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your side, Spurs. Uh, obviously beaten by Liverpool yesterday. That's four games lost in the Premier League now for Tottenham. Uh, people were talking them up at the start of the season. I know you weren't, but there was a lot of chat about how Tottenham were nailed on to finish third, how they would be the closest to Manchester City and Liverpool. And, you know, mathematically, that's still possible, of course. They're in fourth place. You know, they're not a million miles off of the top. They're only, what, six points off of Manchester City in second, eight off of Arsenal, who sit top. So it's not the end of the world for Spurs. But I've been really shocked by how bad the performances have been this season. Now, I know in the second half against Liverpool yesterday, they were pretty good. And actually, in the end, we're unlucky, I thought, not to get something out of the game. But generally speaking, when you look at Spurs this season, you just can't go out every week and, and fail to start and allow teams, you know, that upper hand because teams like Liverpool will be good enough most of the time to hold you off when they get that kind of advantage. So where are you at in terms of where Spurs are at this season? Is it Conte? Is it the players? Is it a bit of both? What's the problem at Spurs? Why isn't it clicking in the way that so many predicted it would ahead of the campaign? Um, I, I think, and I thought at a time, I thought some of those predictions were a little bit overboard. In terms of in terms of challenging for for a title, um, I think a lot of people, a lot of journalists, got carried away by the transfer business. Just because the business was better than previous years, doesn't mean it was fantastic. I thought Tottenham did some good business. They bought Basuma into the into the side, who should work. It's taken a little while. Um, Richarlison came into the side. It's taken a little while, um, but. Ultimately, I'd, I'd probably explain Tottenham uh, Tottenham's situation like this. We've got a manager who, for me, is one of the best managers in the world. Um, I think that's been proven and, and, and until further notice. I think you need to foul at two consecutive clubs before that doesn't apply anymore. Um, okay. So uh, it's probably, I think everyone can have a bad, a bad stint at a club. Um, the reality is Spurs are probably somewhere between third and fifth, depending on how they how they perform. Like you say, they're not performing well. Uh, and so we're closer to the so we're closer to fifth and third at the minute. And the reality is we've got Conte who wants to play in a certain formation. He believes in it. He does not have the players to play that formation successfully. And one of those two things needs to change. It's either going to be the January transfer window where Conte can bring in some players that mean we can play that formation more effectively. Or Conte is going to have to change his formation, which feels very, very unlikely. And I think ultimately that will be the determining factor as to whether Conte signs a new contract around about so, February time. But if I'm if I'm if I'm Daniel Levy and I'm Tottenham Hotspur <coughs> Football Club, right? I know yeah. we're supposed to be chatting about the weekend, but I, I want to have this wider conversation around Spurs because I think it's it's quite interesting. If I'm Daniel Levy now, and Antonio Conte is telling me I need this, I need that. You know, as you said. He wanted Perisic, he went out and brought him in. Obviously, that was a free transfer. He went and bought Basuma in. He paid big money for Richarlison. Uh, Jed Spence is a player that's come in that Antonio Conte very quickly distanced himself from, didn't he? He said, it's not my signing, it's the club signing. So, 
if I'm a, if I'm Daniel Levy or whoever it is that's in control of the purse strings at Tottenham, and I've got a manager there sitting there making demands about how I need to back him in the transfer market, in every opportunity he gets, he's having a dig and having a go at the fact that the squad is not where it needs to be. Yet, by that same token, he won't sign a contract. I feel conflicted. How can I give him the keys, essentially, to, to Tottenham Hotspur Football Club and give him the, the backing and the support financially that he clearly demands if he himself will not commit to the project beyond the end of this season? Can you not see how there is, at least in my opinion, a bit of a kind of yeah, stalemate I here? Yeah, yeah, there is a stalemate. There's a there's a bit of chicken, chicken and egg. But then you've got to remember there's another element to it in Levy in Levy's favour that if he does want to sack him at a certain point, the shorter the contract, the better for the football club. So there's a little bit of of bonus. Clearly, if I'm Conte, I'd be saying, you want me to stay? This is what I want. And obviously, there's a bit of conflict there. But like you say, he has been back to a degree. He has been given some players. But the fundamental problem with Tottenham right now for me is... You can exclude Harry Kane from this because Harry Kane's an exceptional footballer. You can exclude Hume Min Son because Hume Min Son's an exceptional footballer, albeit Hume Min Son is now 30. Um, Harry Kane's approaching 30. They're probably peaking now and will get worse. There are still players in that team who were around when Mauricio Pochettino was was putting up his title challenges and Champions League runs. The title overhaul. challenges, come on, Dan. <laughs> there was a title challenge. Use that loosely, come on. There was a title. There was a title challenge in there. Where they ended up finishing third in the two horse race. That one. <laughs> well, you you might finish third in the two horse race uh, this season, and I, and I, and I'll be sure to remind you of that fact. Please do. Uh, I will. Um, but the point is, the the evolution of that team has not happened quick enough. So when I look at Tottenham, there are still players in that squad that when they're starting football matches, I wince. And if you're going to put up a title challenge, you cannot have that. If you're if you're Arsenal now, you're looking at your team, the team sheet goes up. Do you look at that team right now and think, oh, no, he's playing today? I don't think you do. You're in a no, good I place. Don't. I don't, yeah. You're in a good place. Okay, if you get a couple of injuries, and Tottenham have had a couple of injuries, um, we've had injuries in attacking positions, but defensively is where Tottenham's problems sit. And that you've still got... Eric Dyer, you've still got Ben Davis. You, you've we've got Emerson Royale who Conte favours for no apparent reason. So there's three players straight away there um, in the back line in the back five. Yeah, but but he's brought in Clement Longley. <coughs> he's brought in, or the club have brought in Jed Spence. Players have come in as well for a lot of those positions that I know that Spurs fans look at and worry about. Yet they don't get in the side. So who was signing him in the first place? That's why I don't get. About yeah, so I think whole... like we've touched on Jed Spence there, haven't you? So Jed Spence was mm. bought in by the football club. That was um that was clearly made made clear by Antonio Conte. Longley's there. He's he's just starting to play some football matches. Um, Perisic has come in, but there are still players who have been there a long time, um, who aren't what I would call good enough to challenge for a title. And subsequently, Tottenham are going to challenge for a title for as long as those players play. Dropping one or two of them in for one game or two to fill a gap is okay. But there was a game last week where I looked at the starting lineup. I saw Emerson Royal at right back. I saw Sanchez. I saw Dyer. I saw Ben Davis. 
four of those players in a back five is far too many. You're going to lose football matches. You're going to drop points. And the Premier League has moved on a lot. You look last year, um, the last two, three years, we're talking about 95 points to win it, to win a league. For context, I think Arsenal's invincible season was was around that mark, wasn't it? You know, and that yeah. was an exception. That was an ex- I think Arsenal's invincible season was 93 points. So the last three, the last three or four titles in this country, we're, we're talking mid 90s to 100. You can't afford to <clears throat> to um, to have that many poor players in the, in the lineups challenge for a title. So subsequently, Spurs are going to be mixing in around fourth place. Conte says it takes two transfer windows. He's absolutely right. But um, that's the reality of it. I think Spurs fans who were booing at half-time, um, which someone mentioned in the comments a little while back, they need to understand that the team is the team points-wise is at the level it's at. The, yeah. We're not we're not a title-winning squad. Yeah. And, and it's you're not man a disaster. In, you're man in the comments here, you're saying Tottenham don't have a strategy or a process of evolving like Arsenal. Um they just want instant coffee on the time and always foul. I don't disagree with that, to, to, to be honest. It doesn't appear to be um, a strategy necessarily. And there hasn't been a strategy for, well, since Pochettino's first or second season, uh, probably. And you're, you're right, really. That he's gone out. He's bought in Jose Mourinho, a big-name manager, to, to, try and, um, to try and get some success. That didn't work. He's gone. He's bought in Conte, same principle. Um, where he compares it to a process of evolving like Arsenal, I guess that's a gamble and it, it's probably taken a season more than Arsenal wanted. It doesn't always work. You need, you know, you need a lot of things to, to go your way. And... Yeah, you, you do need things to go your way. But I think people want to at least understand where something is going. So like last season, obviously, for Arsenal, there was a lot of disappointment at the end of the campaign, right? I sat here on this very show and I... I found it really hard to kind of get over the fact that we missed out on the top four the way we did. But at the same time, I knew deep down and and particularly when the dust had settled that we'd moved in the right direction. We were much closer than we were the previous year. You were looking at some of those players that the team was being built around and you always felt like, you know, the only way for them was up in terms of their individual progress and therefore the team would be better going forward. And when you got that belief and confidence in a process, or I know people hate that word, a plan, then you can I think, you can afford them time. But I, think, I don't I think, see one at Spurs. I, no, I, really I think you don't. Need I agree to, with that comment. So I agree with the comment that there, there, there isn't really a strategy. Daniel Levy's strategy is to get the best manager available um, if he can. That went horrendously wrong in, in last summer. We ended up with Nuno Espirito Santo because various <laughs> things fell by the wayside. That went wrong. At least there's a bit of ambition to get rid of these managers quickly um, and try something new. If we're talking about, you know, a process of evolving, do you give Nuno Espirito Santo the job for five years and say, well, don't worry, um, you know, he's new, we're going to back him over five seasons? You know, there, there's a balance to it, isn't there? I agree there's there's not a great strategy. Bring in a manager, um, the best manager you can, to try and sweat as much as you can out of these players. The fact is some of these players aren't good enough. But what I say about being closer, a lot comes down to how patient the fan base are. Because if we're measuring it on closeness... Tottenham are a lot closer to first place now than we were this time last season. Yet, there are still unhappy Tottenham fans. Um, some will point at the style of football. Some will point at... Does that um, bother you, Dan, the style of football? Um, yeah, I guess it, it depends, doesn't it? Um, it, it? It bothers me. It bothers me sometimes. Obviously, I'm 
I'm Italian. I'm, I'm used to defensive football. I know what type of football we're going to play. Um, what what bothers me is when the style of football doesn't work, and that's obvious an obvious thing to say. Um, there's nothing more fantastic than shit in a one nil win against your rivals. I remember like when we beat Arsenal a couple of years ago, and um, Alavi asked me what was the second half like, and I described it as. Um, as someone trying to have sex without Viagra, where literally Mourinho, Mourinho stuck like 10 men behind the ball and watched Arsenal huff and puff for like 45 minutes. There's no issue with the style if it works. Spurs have an over-reliance on a front three. There is a clear... Spurs front three is very, very good. Kulosevsky is a fantastic footballer. He's been injured. That's a blow. Richarlison, who would fill in for him, bit of a blow because he's been injured as well. Son's been out of form. And... Ultimately, a front three with two players in it is always going to be a problem because now you're relying on a front two. So there is a clear idea there, which is to defend, suffocate, counter-attack. You need good fullbacks. Tottenham haven't got them. That's the facts. And if you're over-reliant on a front three and that three either isn't available or has a bad game, you're in, you're in big, yeah. big trouble. So I understand the formation. I understand the tactics. The only thing that's frustrating for me is it is heavily reliant on having decent fullbacks, which we clearly haven't got. Yeah, but so then, why would, yeah, that, that should why have been addressed, though. You know, it should be addressed. addressed. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. That's the frustration yeah. for me. It's not so much the style of football. Okay. Um, it's not like we're playing long ball. There's a difference between there's a difference between a West Brom Burnley style of football where yeah. you have two low blocks and then lump the ball forward to, in our case, Harry Kane, hope he flicks it on or someone runs onto it. That's a poor style of football. Mm. Conte and Tottenham's style of football is a bit more tactically astute than that. Unfortunately, the execution is poor. I don't think Conte has got the players to adjust it. And similarly, the defenders I mentioned to you earlier, he hasn't got the confidence in those defenders to only play four. So yeah. it's a very difficult situation he finds himself in in, in his defence, if that summarises it well enough. OK, let's, let's flip it to Liverpool. Big win for them yesterday. <coughs> it was their first away win of the season. It's mad to think that, right? A side that have been so good over the last few seasons. 30, it's taken them 13 games to find their first uh, win on the road. Obviously, they didn't play 13 away, but you know what I'm saying. Um, why have they dropped off so much, in your opinion? I've got my um, opinions on this, but I'm interested in yours. And then we'll talk a little bit about the idea that they might be up for sale because just uh, a week or so, or two weeks or so, after Jurgen Klopp sat there and, and complained about sort of sugar daddy ownership, he could well be working under uh, someone very, very similar in the not too distant future. Um, so let's make some comparisons then. Um, Arsene Wenger, when would you say Arsene Wenger's Arsenal started to started to decline? What year? Uh, I want to say. I want to say about 2008, 2009. I think up until that point, okay, so, he was doing what he could do because yeah, the, so, new money had come in and it, it just, the landscape totally changed. Yeah, the landscape totally changed. Okay, I'll come back to that. Um, and then when would you say Mauricio's Pochettino's Tottenham started to decline? And the reality is what happened to Liverpool last year was difficult. To lose a Premier League title that you had in your hands 15 minutes later to then go to the Champions League final and get beat, to then pick yourself up for another season um, a, a couple of months later. That's hard to do. Um, 
I would have argued, I would have argued that um, when Arsenal started to climb under Wenger, it was after the Champions League final defeat. You've reached yeah. the pinnacle. You've reached the pinnacle of that squad. Everything you've worked towards, you've lost that game. You've then got to go out three months later and start picking up, picking up wins away at places like Blackburn Rovers. It takes a certain type of, of motivation. And if you've got the same players at the squad, largely, it's very, very difficult. And you'll see a lot of times teams have slow starts that takes a while to recover from. I think Liverpool will do okay, but then they're not going to get close to the title this season. They'll be scrapping around fourth place. Liverpool had a lot to deal with. They've obviously lost Saido Mane, which is which is a big loss. It's recoverable. They've got a couple of injuries as well. But the reality is to have to pick yourself up and go again after three or four seasons where they've been relentless to deal with the blow of losing the quadruple. You know, they've come within two games of the quadruple and that's the reality of it. It's really, really difficult. And I think that's the biggest issue um, with with um, Liverpool. I think the way Klopp, the way they play, the way Klopp coaches them is clearly very, very demanding. There's a lot of players who have levelled out. Trent Alexander-Arnold being one, um, he, he certainly levelled out after he burst onto the scene two or three seasons ago. Um even Robinson is not getting forward as aggressively and consistently as he did, but those two players are still being relied on for the strategy. Similar to what I was saying with Spurs fullbacks, I'd take Liverpool's fullbacks instead in a heartbeat, don't get me wrong. But the formation is still heavily reliant on those two players. Trent Alexander-Arnold is struggling, so that's that's a big deal. Um, Nunes is a new striker, he's a bit hit or miss, he's not of the same quality, of guaranteed quality as Saido Mane, and all those things start to add up. But the big thing is to you know to pick yourself up and go again after that. It, it's difficult. It takes a it takes a certain type of human being, um, and I just think Liverpool are suffering because of that. And it, it might take a few new signings um, in the summer for them to be ready again next season. That's my yeah, view. Yeah, I think I think as well. Um, the midfield badly needed refreshing. And where I don't have sympathy for Klopp is that that's been quite clear, I think, for a while. So players like Oxlade Chamberlain, Naby Keita, Thiago to a degree, players that he has relied on as being part of his rotational midfield have constantly been injured. And when you've got that problem and you can see that problem and it repeats itself over and over again, yet you do nothing to address it, as Liverpool did in the summer. I think that you kind of are to blame for your own downfall in that sense. I think that's been their big problem area in the middle of the park. They've not been as dynamic. They've not been able to press as aggressively and they've lost the battle in the middle of the park way too many times. Agree with you as well that, um, you know, Mane is a huge loss and, you know, obviously they're unfortunate to lose Luis Diaz to an injury. But as you say, or any of the players that they've brought in at the level of Mane in terms of guaranteed quality, I don't think so. So I think it's a combination of things with Liverpool. And, and as I mentioned, the news broke today that FSG are considering selling the football club. Now, will it make a bit of an idiot out of Jurgen Klopp, Dan, if a, a sugar daddy, let's say, for example, from the Middle East comes in, takes them over after the way he's been talking about the ownership at some of the other clubs in the Premier League? Um, not really, because... I think we know he's a bit of an idiot anyway, we, you know, with the maximum amount of respect I can offer to him after after saying that. He said things in the past like, you know, 
the day I pay 60 million for a footballer is the day I stop being a manager because I'd rather coach a player than develop one. Then he spent 80 million on Van Dyke, 60 million on, on Allison, and so on and so forth. Um, the reality is who owns a football club is out of his, out of his hands and his control. Um, if I was what if I was Klopp, I'd be a little bit worried that owners of that nature who may buy the football club aren't the type of owners typically who would tolerate a start to the season like this. Um, yeah. And he'd be he'd be sacked. Um, I think Klopp is a fantastic manager. I think he's the best manager in the Premier League today in terms of in terms of what he's achieved in his career. But the same happened to him at Dortmund. Um, he had great success with Dortmund, but that squad broke. Um, I don't know if it's training methods. I don't know if it's the mentality monsters myth, the way they play at 100 mile an hour. But that squad broke, and they were in the relegation zone. At Christmas in Germany, and I think when he got sacked, they were maybe somewhere between twelfth and fourteenth. So there's a bit of previous here in terms of in terms of how many years he can have a squad at the peak. He's done fantastically well, but every squad needs a refresh. And look, you, any person who is going to win a league and watch Manchester City score three goals in fifteen minutes to take it away from them. And then go and get beat in the Champions League final. There's no person on earth who can come back to the work next next day and everything be fine. You know, it's that is the end of an era when that happens. That is the end of a particular team. You need to keep the two or three players that are going to become the spine and build around it. And I don't think, like we've said, the players Liverpool have bought in to build around that spine are of the requisite quality um, compared to what compared to what has been replaced. And I think yeah. that's the fundamental issue. But no, yeah. I don't think it will make him look like an idiot. I think, like we said before, footballers, uh, football evolves. Liverpool, if they get bought out, they'll have a different type of ownership. It could be that Klopp is pleased to have that extra transfer muscle compared to the likes of Manchester City, and he might give him a bit of motivation to go again. But for this season, you know, Liverpool are in the also runs category, I'm afraid, and that you know they're not good enough to put a run of results together in my in my opinion to turn it around. Manchester United, Dan, they were beaten by uh, Aston Villa at the weekend. The return of Unai Emery, somebody that we, of course, as Arsenal fans know very, very well. Um, it was just so typical Unai Emery to come in uh, to get a response straight away. I said on TalkSport 2 the other day when we were giving our predictions for this fixture that I really felt like in front of a packed Villa Park and given the new manager kind of feeling and, and the vibe around the place that actually Villa could Stunner Manchester United side, who I think are improving slowly, but have these types of performances in them. Um, were you surprised that Villa, you know, comprehensively beat them? And uh, and what have you made of United so far this season? Uh, but to be honest, I was surprised that they comprehensively beat them um, in the manner that they did. It, it was far worse a beating than um, than I was anticipating. Um, I, 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 I must be honest. It, you know, a, a defeat wouldn't have surprised me. But the way they were, you know, blown off the park in the first 15 minutes, um, I, I was surprised about. I thought they had turned the corner um, enough that they, they wouldn't um, they wouldn't get to a place where they were two down without competing again, like they did at the beginning of the season. Um, what do I make of their season so far? Look, it's it's mixed, isn't it? They, they seem to be... <clears throat> They seem to be capable of pulling a performance or two out. They gave Tottenham an absolute hiding. Um, 
they were lucky to beat Arsenal. That was that that performance that they put in against Spurs. I know Spurs were bad, but that was when I kind of stood up and took notice and went, "Yeah, this is what Ten Hag is looking for. This is what yeah, he's yeah. trying to do. This is this is Man United again." That was the first time in years that I've looked at United and gone, "My God, they look scary." In yeah, it was, it was it was it was a. It was a perfect scenario, wasn't it? Against playing against a team who who were playing very very poorly on the night, um, a night game under the lights, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was a perfect setting, and they gave up. They gave Tottenham an absolute hiding. Um, they beat Arsenal without playing well, but they got their tactics. They got their tactics right in that particular game in terms of choosing when to attack. But then in and amongst it, there's been some some poor performances, hasn't there? Um, let's ignore the first two of the season. Let's put them to one side. You know, the, the gubbing at Brentford and, and Brighton gave them a bit of a scene too, didn't they? Forget those. But even in and amongst that, there's been some some bad performances. They they got lucky against West Ham, in my view. So they're very inconsistent. Um, I still feel, you know, we've seen enough of Ten Hag to know what he wants to do. It will take him a bit of time to implement that. There's still the issue up front. I don't think they have a striker that, Ten Hag believes in. Are you are you surprised, Dan, that Ronaldo's just found his way back into the picture? Because he obviously looked as though he was headed for the exit in the summer. Then the season started and he was getting on with it and he found himself out of the team. And then there was that whole incident with him walking off before the full-time whistle. And he was obviously disciplined for that, missed the game. And now not only is he back in the team, he was wearing the captain's armband yesterday. Yeah, I, I was surprised about the captain's armband thing. I thought that was really weird. I, I wondered why Ten Hag was doing that. Um, I didn't think Ten Hag was that sort of manager, that he'd do things for, for a publicity stunt, but that's what it, it felt like. In terms of bringing him back into the side, um, again, I think that kind, of, that kind of qualifies my point where I don't think he's got a striker he believes in. I don't think um, Rashford is the... Is any well? I don't think he's a good striker. Let's just let's not beat around the bush. Yeah. I think he's got some good attributes, but I don't yeah. think he's a good striker. I don't see the need to be resting Rashford for a League Cup game. Um, so why he was starting Ronaldo, I wasn't particularly sure. I just think with Ten Hag, he's going to need obviously a couple of transfer windows as every new manager does. But I think he's going to need some time to implement his playing style. You've seen a few bursts of what it was like. you like the game against Tottenham, the game against Liverpool, where they were very, very good. Both at home. Um, obviously, transferring that into consistency is going to take some time. But I've not been too impressed with Manchester United. I'm not too impressed with their, with the teams they put out. When I look at the, when I look at the lineup, I never look at it and think, wow, this is a team that's, you know, ready to go places. And I think if you're an Arsenal fan and you look at the two teams, you're going to take your own team. Even yeah. Tottenham, despite losing, you know, I'd still take, I'd still take Tottenham's eleven pound for pound against them. So I think they got a lot, a lot of work to do. Yeah, um, I, I'm sure there's people who challenge that bit, but I still think there's a, a bit more quality. I, you know, on paper, I still think they're the fifth or sixth best squad. Okay, um, let's take a quick look at Newcastle. Just want to get your thoughts on Newcastle because I've said this on this show quite a few times. I've said it on Ninety Min a few times, and I've had quite a bit have kind of pushed back on this. I'm not convinced, even still, despite their recent run of results, that Newcastle are good enough to sustain this 
and that Newcastle are good enough to put up a fight until the dying stages of the season for the top four. That's because I look at that squad and I still think there's a lot of work to be done on paper. Where are you on the Eddie Howe hype train? Because, you know, yeah, he's done better than expected. He's done... I think he's evolved as a manager in that when I used to watch his Bournemouth sides, I always used to think play lovely, attacking, free-flowing football. But defensively, there was a lot to be desired. And actually now, this Newcastle side have tightened up a hell of a lot in that sense. I think they've got the joint best defence in the league with Arsenal currently. 11 goals conceded in uh, their first 14 games. They've played 14, so that's even better. Arsenal have played 13. But where are you on Newcastle? Can they sustain this? Can they challenge for a Champions League place? Uh, no. No, I don't think so, um, to, to, to be honest. Um, I mean, they can sustain the challenge for a period of time. I think, have they won six in a row? Is it all around that sort of, around that sort of number? Their first six games of the Premier League season, they'd only won once in their first six. They've hit a run of form um, and they've been playing well. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing against them. But, you know, they got a, let's have a look here. So they've gone to Fulham and won. Fulham had a, that was a turning point for them. They'd won one winning six, one winning six games. They went to Fulham. Fulham had a man set off of two minutes. They got a good win. They drew nil nil. They beat Brentford at home. They beat Everton who were pulling. They come to Tottenham and got a good result. Good, good luck to them. Um, a couple of mistakes. They've beaten Aston Villa, um, who are in all sorts of trouble, and they've beaten Southampton and just sacked their manager. So what they've done is they've had a good run of fixtures. You still have to win them, and they've done that. But I have not seen enough from them to say they're the real deal. Now, in terms of challenging for a top four position, we've seen this before from teams. Okay, We saw it from West Ham a couple of years ago. We've yeah. seen it from Leicester a couple of years ago. On paper, those squads were no worse than Newcastle's squad is now. If Newcastle didn't have owners from the part of the world we had their owners from, we'd be looking at this Newcastle team and saying, yeah, they're doing all right. They've had a few wins. Good luck to them, but they'll fall away. I don't think the fact they have owners should change the way I view that squad. They're playing but is well. there an argument, Dan, that they go out in January and now, they bolster that squad to the point yeah. where they can now, now clearly if they go out in January and bolster the squad with quality then there's a chance they could kick on there's also a chance that that may unsettle the squad that's doing perfectly well at the minute and perhaps January is not the right time to do that if you ask me what I think of Newcastle right now I'd say they are playing well they are getting some good results as teams do from time to time um, we've looked at the league table in the past as I said and we've seen West Ham in fourth place in April um, I'm hearing now Newcastle where, you know, they're going to challenge for the top four. They're going to break into the top seven. They could, you've got Pep Guardiola calling them title challengers and all this sort of nonsense. And I look at it and I still see a team that starts with Chris Wood, um, Dan Byrne, um, Shah, Longstaff. You know, these aren't good footballers, okay? They've got a good system going on, good bit of momentum, Everyone's happy. Everyone's feeling good. You can drag an extra two out of 10 out of your performances and you'll pick up some results. But that team now is not good enough without some serious January strengthening. Trust me, yeah. Newcastle aren't a threat. And I, I'm happy. I, I know I know what making a statement like that means because it will be played back to me 
Um, I'm very rarely wrong about things like this, as you know, and I come out with some outlandish predictions, but this is a pretty safe one. This Newcastle team are not a threat to the top of the division at this time. Not yet. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I've taken a lot of heat for saying that, but it's it's the way I feel about the squad. And I agree with, with all of the points that you've made. Uh, let's quickly touch on Southampton because obviously they're in the drop zone, uh, beaten by Newcastle at the weekend and have parted company with Ralph Hasenhutl. Now I think uh, it looks as though they're going to bring in Nathan Jones, the Luton town manager. I've got a big issue with Southampton though, Dan, because for me, you know, they've they've moved to sack Hasenhutl and they're well within their rights to do so because results haven't been there. But that said, I don't think they as a football club have shown any ounce of ambition for a number of seasons now. They just sell, sell, sell. They've tried something different this season. They've gone out and brought in a group of really talented young players, but not complemented that enough with experience around it, in my opinion. And at the first sign of trouble, they've pulled the trigger on Ralph Hasenhutl. I think the questions around Southampton need to be answered further up the chain. And I think that Southampton going after Nathan... I mean, is Nathan Jones an upgrade on Ralph Hasenhutl would be my question. No. Um, well, I mean, we don't know who Nathan Jones is, is the, is the reality of it. I mean, obviously, Luton Town are, are doing pretty well, particularly particularly at home. Um, that's fantastic. Would I sack a manager and go after Nathan Jones? No. Nathan Jones is someone who I think if you have a hunt for a manager and some names come in the frame, you'd have a look at him. Fine. But to get rid of someone to bring in Nathan Jones is bold. Really, really bold. Um, irrespective of who that someone is. Back to Southampton then. Um, I wouldn't say it's the first sign of trouble at Southampton. I think there's been a couple of times over the last se- last couple of seasons where you thought, um, well, it's time to get rid of Harson Hootel. Suddenly they put a run of results together. That's probably the reason I would have kept him. Um, at this particular time. They've just fallen into the bottom three. Um, But he's proved he can get them out of it. So I'm not sure what Southampton are expecting from him at this point. I I would have been inclined, if I was Southampton, to to leave him in there, let him get them out of it, give him a few games to do so, then maybe pull the trigger at the end of the season and take a different direction. As you say, the squad isn't great. They've relied a lot since coming into the division, um, since being promoted again after they dropped away quite significantly. They went down to the third tier. They've relied a lot on bringing youth through the academy and selling it. Um, that's their business model. No issue with that. You know, they are a, they are a small club with, with the greatest respect to them. That's fine. But to pull the trigger now and bring in a manager of Luton feels like a wild gamble that doesn't seem very thought out. Um, Harson Hoot has been there long enough, you could argue, but not the easiest job in the world. I just think maybe they've got, they just want a change of direction. He's been there four years, hasn't he? Yeah. And I think maybe they've seen, it tends to happen when a club falls into the bottom three that suddenly a chairman thinks, oh, well, it's like he's this. got a panic button in his, in his office and it's like, yeah. We're in the bottom three, bang, press it. Yeah, that's it. it. We're, in, we're, in the bo- we're in the bottom three. Anyone below yeah. Bournemouth, if you're below Bournemouth, you should automatically be sacked, um, <laughs> which is a fair argument. But you look at, you know, you look at their recent their recent results. Um, they had a little run where they picked up a point against Arsenal, didn't they? They won away from home against Bournemouth. They picked up a good point against West Ham. That's fine. And away defeat to Crystal Palace is perhaps understandable. So to you know what, them- though? I, I, was, I was covering that game away at Crystal Palace. 
Um, and, and I thought that they were awful in the first half, but in the second half, there were signs. There really was, just like there was against Arsenal in the second half. They were much more resilient in the second period at Selhurst Park. They were, um, you know, they were creating chances. And But for some really poor finishing from Che Adams, they would have got something out of that game, maybe even all three points. So it, it's a hard one. It's a really hard one with them because I look at where they find themselves and I know that they're struggling. And I know a lot of people would have tipped them at the start of the season to go down. But I just... You know, if you told me that they're, they're moving Ralph Hasenhutel on and then they come up with a managerial candidate who I'm confident will be an upgrade in some way or will bring something to the table that they don't have, i.e., you know, let's say that they wanted to shift it up and bring in not him himself, but Sam Allardyce type, right, who you knew was going to get them competitive, do the basics right, tighten them up. Then I'd say, OK, I get that. I just don't get the Nathan Jones thing. I just don't get that. No, that's no, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, there's an argument about the timing. Now, there's one game against Liverpool. You assume that's a defeat. It gives a manager a bit of time during the World Cup to work with the players who aren't at the World Cup and all that sort of stuff. But if it's going to be Nathan Jones, and there's no disrespect to the, to the guy. He could prove to be a very good coach. But it just feels it feels a little bit strange. Um, fair play to Ralph Hasenhutl. He survived two 9-0 defeats. But... Ultimately, a, a home defeat to Newcastle's got the better of him. It was um, the end. So, can I just ask? Can I just ask Darcy Smith in the chat? Do you want to ask? Ask a question, Darcy. Any question, we'll answer it for you. Yeah, pop a question in, mate. Pop a question in. I promise you, uh, we're not ignoring you specifically. There's so many comments coming through all the time. It's difficult uh, to hold the conversation and keep across them uh, throughout the show. But yeah, mate, drop a question in, and we'll we'll answer it for sure. Um, just quickly to kind of round up, Dan. Um, Manchester City, you know, I don't know if this means that I'm starting to believe. I don't want to say this, but the fact that I was so annoyed that they found the winner against uh, against Fulham at the weekend and I was actually bothered about Manchester City's result for the first time in years is obviously a good sign from an Arsenal perspective. But what did you make of that penalty decision? Because I know I tweeted at the time saying, I don't really get what the problem is. He kicks into the back of his Achilles and you know, it doesn't get any of the ball. And if you do that in 2022, you're kind of asking for trouble. Would I like to see that given as a penalty? Probably not. But do I accept that the way football is now, that you have no choice but to give that as a penalty? Yeah. And I actually pissed off quite a few Arsenal fans by suggesting that I thought that that was the right call. Um, I know you've got an opinion on the penalty, first of yeah. all. And then I know you've got an opinion on Man City and Pep Guardiola. So, so go for it. Um, so I don't think it was a penalty. Um, I think it was a dive. <clears throat> yeah, there's contact. There's always contact in a box. There's contacts. There's lots of contact in a box. I don't feel the contact was um, anywhere near enough to knock him over. And you can see the delay. Yeah, you can argue that it's clumsy. Yes, you can argue that it gives the referee a decision to make. But that does not make something a penalty. You know, there's always this argument that if someone lunges in, oh, well, he lunged in. Just because you lunge in doesn't make it a penalty. I didn't feel like um, Kevin De Bruyne was impeded at all. Uh, I think he felt a little bit of contact and it, and he he was clever enough, if that's the right word, to, to go down. What happened is the defender panicked in the last minute of a football match and swung his leg. He's a poor defender. But being a poor defender doesn't mean you should give away a penalty because someone's chosen to fall to the floor. So I didn't think it was a penalty. 
I don't think that this was anywhere near as bad. But in terms of Arsenal fans um, who, you know, did or didn't think it was a penalty, it was very similar to the Gabriel Jesus incident against Liverpool. I actually think the foul, if it was a foul on Jesus, was far worse than this one. Um, I think there was a lot more of a swipe taken at Jesus and the contact was a lot more. But it was exactly the same thing where Jesus and De Bruyne felt some contact, realised that with the situation they were better to go down. And you can almost see time pass while their brain decides what's the best thing for me to do here. Shall I try and chase this football or shall I fall to the floor? And I think... When a player does that, for me, I'd always prefer to see um, them told to get up, acknowledge that you haven't been knocked over, you've tried to win a penalty. And as a referee on VAR, who has the the benefit of viewing that in hindsight, um, I'm going to call you out on it and I'm not going to give that penalty. So I don't think it was a penalty at all. Um, in, terms of Manchester, in terms of you believing and feeling sad, look, I'll say this to everyone who's listening to this show now. If you don't get excited about a title challenge when you're top of the league after a third of the season, then what are you doing? What are you waiting for? What? Why, why are you so worried? What, 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 what's, what's the big deal? Why is everyone so cautious and worried to get excited about a title challenge? You're top of the league after 13 games. Of course, you should be believing. You should be wanting Manchester City to drop points. You should be wanting to open a five-point gap. Of course you should. What's the worst that could happen? You fall short and a few people laugh at you. Well, big deal. If you don't get excited about the position you're in now, then you have to question what's all the years of misery worth? You know, when are you yeah. going to get excited? So I'd absolutely be watching Manchester City's game, absolutely fuming that they, they managed to find a way to win that game. Because, you know, if you can't build a lead, then you haven't got nothing to hold on to, right? So you should absolutely be getting excited. You're a third of the season in, you've won 11 games. You know, at this run rate, you're going to get 90, 99 to 102 points. And, that brings it home. Yeah, sure, it, it won't be plain sailing for the whole season. And that's why you should be excited when things are going well. Um, Manchester City, look, I think they're going to have too much. Um, that's not Arsenal's fault. That's not Liverpool's fault. It's not Tottenham's fault. It's not Manchester United's fault. Unfortunately, they are the best team in England. And that's probably why games like Sunday or Saturday, if it was Saturday, uh, even more frustrating for you because there's not going to be many opportunities for them to drop points. So, yeah, yeah, I'll keep my views on Pep Guardiola for another day. Um, but yeah, look, you, you should be you should be excited about a title challenge. Why not? Oh, so nice to hear, um, Dan. Uh, going to round it up there. I think um, it's been a good chat. It's been a good show. We've spoken about all different things. We've spoken about uh, many of the Premier League sides and and sort of where they are at the moment. And it was good to kind of have a little bit of a catch up about the bigger picture around a lot of these clubs. Because as as you know, I said at the start, we haven't done a podcast together for a while. So thanks, of course, uh, for joining me. And uh, I'm right in saying that uh, you're going to be with us a lot more during the World Cup. Yeah, I'll be um, I'll be joining you. During the World Cup, similar to the to the Euros, we had a we had a good bit of fun during the last Euros, didn't we? So uh, I'll be uh, hopefully offering my no nonsense analysis on uh, <laughs> all things international football. Indeed, brilliant stuff, Dan. Uh, thank you so so much, mate. Uh, thank you to everybody in the chat as well uh, for participating throughout the show. Thank you to everybody who's watching live or who will watch this or listen to this back a little bit later on. Make sure you leave a like on the video. Make sure you subscribe 
to the channel. We're less than 500 subs away now on YouTube from 25,000. So let's try and get there ASAP. And if you're listening on the audio platforms, then please, of course, do leave us a review. Um, lots more content to come your way this week. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be building up to the Carabao Cup tie with Brighton on Wednesday. And we'll be getting some of you guys involved uh, with a phone-in version of the show uh, from 7 p.m. tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. Uh, that's Tuesday evening. On Wednesday, I'll be at the Arsenal game. So I'll bring you a quick bit of instant reaction from Emirates Stadium. And then the full podcast will be with you on Thursday morning. Thursday night, we're going to be building up. Thursday or Friday night, depending. We're going to be building up to the game against Wolves on Saturday evening as well. And we'll be reacting to Gareth Southgate's England squad when that comes out as well. That will be fun, picking holes in Gareth Southgate's decisions, as if there's not enough people out there doing that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. <laughs> yeah, let's get you on. Let's do it. Uh, it should be good fun. Uh, thank you all, as I say, for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back very, very soon with more. Until next time, take care of yourselves. And uh, as Dan says, enjoy the fact that we're sitting pretty at the top of the Premier League. Catch you all soon. I'm Martin Tyler. And you're listening to Harry Simeon.